city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. I work with a lot of inmates, and it's not unusual when looking back at the behavior of adults with known antisocial or psychopathic tendencies to hear people say things like, well, they saw it coming, or citing examples such as bullying other children, being mean to the family pet. Um, She never felt sorry for anything she did. He lied all the time and so forth. But it's something we have to be cautious about because once we know how things turned out, it colors the way we remember the person as a child. So just how consistent is our ability to empathize and care for others? Were psychopathic adults once cruel as children? Can we recognize a budding psychopath before he or she grows up? And if so, what should we do about it? Our guest today will help us answer some of these questions. Dr. Abigail Marsh is a professor of psychology, neuroscience, and cognitive science at Georgetown University. Her award-winning research aimed at understanding what others think and feel and how this impacts what we do has led her to study individuals at the extreme ends of empathy and compassion, from psychopaths who seem to like any empathy and compassion to extreme altruists who will put themselves in harm's way to help a complete stranger. Welcome to the show, Abby. Thanks for having me. I want to start by talking about your book, The Fear Factor, because you talk about an experience at age 19 when a stranger risks his life to save yours. So how did this shape your own path? I think it really transformed my view of how variable human nature can be having this experience when I was fairly young. Just in brief, what happened is that when I was driving home very late one night, um, around midnight, back to my hometown of Tacoma down the Interstate 5 freeway, as I was coming over an overpass into town, a very small dog ran out in front of my car. And I did what a lot of us would impulsively do, but I now know nobody should do, which is I swerved to try to avoid it. And I hit it anyway, and that sent my car spinning out across the freeway. It's a miracle I didn't hit anybody. But when the car finally stopped spinning, I found myself in the fast lane of the freeway facing backward into the oncoming traffic on this overpass that had no shoulders, and my engine died. And I was really and truly stranded. I didn't have a phone because it was in the 90s and nobody did. And I I had absolutely no idea what to do. Uh, And then out of nowhere, a man appeared next to the passenger side of the car, which was the side closest to the shoulder, and offered to help. You know, he's like, (laughs) what I I just, I very vividly remember his voice. He had a very deep sort of reassuring voice. He's like, you look like you could use some help. Sort of an understatement. And I was like, yes, I could. He looked not like one might picture a, in big uh, quotes, guardian angel to look. He, my memory is his head was shaved and he had a lot of jewelry. And I think he was wearing sunglasses despite it being midnight, but he knew exactly what to do. He ran around to the driver's side of the car through traffic, quickly figured out the car wouldn't get running again because it was still in drive put it in park, got it running again, got us back across the freeway, which was another hairy experience because of course we had to shoot through all this oncoming freeway traffic from a standstill. And then when he got me back to safety near the exit ramp, he was like, you know, 
you're going to be all right. You don't look so good. And I, I know I didn't. And I was like, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay. And he's like, okay, you take care of yourself. And he disappeared. And so it really, I think, changed my perspective on what humans are capable of in a lot of ways. So how did you turn these questions that you had about this experience into your own research? So my interests have always related to how people understand others' emotions and how that affects their own behavior. And what this particular experience got me thinking about was how the capacity to care for other people's welfare relates to your ability to understand and recognize when others are in distress. And because that is the most fundamental ingredient for, in some ways, either altruism, right, which is some sort of response to help somebody in distress, but also aggression, right? It's causing other people distress without stopping because you're hurting them. Yeah, it's almost like two sides of the same coin. Exactly, exactly. And so my initial research was laboratory research looking at how uh, people recognize a a person's facial expression as signaling distress. And so uh, in the laboratory, I was showing just healthy people from the community pictures of different facial expressions and asking them to recognize them. And what I found initially was that people who are more altruistic uh, across a variety of measures of altruism, all of which were not self-reported altruism, we were actually asking them to do something. And those people were more sensitive just in general to other people's fear in particular. So when, if they're looking at a fearful facial expression, they're better at recognizing it than the average person. Um, what is the normal right development of altruism? Or I guess maybe empathy might be a better word when we're talking about children. Mm-hmm. Well, children are very sensitive to other people's distress from a very early age. We've known this for decades now where you um, will find that on average, children respond with more distress to the sound of other babies crying from infancy. And, And they don't respond the same way to other sort of equally sort of grating sounds that are equalized to sound like babies crying but aren't. And that suggests that there's some kind of empathic response to the distress of others in typically developing human children. And even by the age of 18 months, children will offer to help a stranger whose need is obvious to them. Like if they drop something that they can't reach again, children at that age will already offer to come help them. And they're starting to get good at recognizing other people's emotional cues. But even from a pretty early age, as young as maybe three, we can start to see differences among children. You know, it's interesting because when I think of children, I mean, all of us as parents have had some experience with thinking our children are being cruel or, you know, are not being empathetic. So how do you make sense of this? Like you're saying on the one hand, around 18 months to three years old, you can see kids start showing this empathy toward each other. And then we all, I think as adults, sometimes put our adult lens on things and kind of go, why would you do that? Or that's so Mm -hmm. mean, or that's so cruel. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? Well, the capacities for caring and um, aggression are not mutually incompatible. I think that's a really important point to make. And we know this already when it comes to, for example, animal behavior. You know, if you take, for example, the average predatory species, like lions are a really great example. We Obviously, they're, they can be extremely aggressive. I suppose you would consider it cruel to disembowel another animal alive. That's just part of what they do. But lions can be incredibly caring as well, especially female lionesses are, are renowned for doing something that many mammalian species won't do, which is they'll care for any lion offspring. They don't, they're not picky about only caring for their own. They'll care for babies in general, which is a very 
you know, if we put it in humans terms, kind thing to do. In addition, there are these amazing cases of female lions taking care of animals that are not lions that would normally be prey, uh, baby antelopes and baby rhesus monkeys. And so we know that in any individual, the ability to be cruel and the ability to be kind can reside within the same brain. And for the most part, when a normal person treats others cruelly, and this is true for adults or children, it's because that that meets some goal that they have in that moment. And or something about that situation or that person is not tripping their compassionate, empathic circuit. So for example, if somebody um, is somebody you view as a threat to yourself or somebody that you love, right? Somebody has been hurting you. Well, in anybody, that's going to really inhibit compassion. Definitely. Uh, even if you're perfectly capable of it. Well, there seems to be, again, some kind of interesting dichotomy between feeling, whether it's feeling fear or having those emotions and then the aggressive behavior what we actually do with those feelings. Aggressive impulses are not learned. I think this is a really important distinction to make. There's a, there's a pervasive and completely incorrect view about human nature that all behavior is learned. You know, if you're, if a child is engaging in some sort of behavior, it's because they learned it from somebody else. Totally not true. So the age of two is statistically the most aggressive age of, of the average person's life. And young kids, it's normative for them at some point to do something that hurts somebody else. But what they learn after they hurt somebody, whether it's you know kicking or scratching or biting or whatever toddlers do when they're in tantrum, that aggression causes the other person some sort of distress, right? They, they cry out in pain. They look sad. If it's another kid, they might cry. And for most kids, that they very quickly learn to avoid the kinds of behavior that causes distress on other people. And so even when they feel those angry, aggressive impulses in the future, they can control them. They don't necessarily act on them. So what does fear have to do with empathy? The interesting thing about fear as an emotion is that it's, a, it's an acute form of distress. It signals that the person believes that something terrible is about to happen. And, and again, in most people, the sight or sound or even the smell of somebody else who's afraid will result in an, an empathic fear response, not a full-fledged fear contagion where now you're afraid. Sometimes that happens, but not always. But what it seems to do is in order to interpret that person's emotion, you have to simulate the experience of fear, at least a mild version of it in your own brain. And so we'll see activity in the same circuits that we see when a person experiences fear, when they see or hear or smell somebody else experiencing fear, which is, again, an empathic response. And what I find interesting is that the degree to which people have that empathic response is very closely coupled to how compassionate they are. So people who are very altruistic seem unusually likely to have empathic responses to others' fear, whereas people who are unusually uncompassionate or psychopathic, for example, and for whatever reason, that's not true for emotions like pain and sadness. It seems to be that there's a particularly close relationship between empathic responses to fear and the capacity for compassion. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of child psychopathy, which I know that is a very controversial term and, you know, none of us even use it. I think the more typical term is callous and unemotional children. Mm -hmm. So children, you're right, that we, we tend to focus in children on the key 
emotional component of psychopathy. So, you know, there was a very well-known article a couple of years back called, can you call a nine-year-old a psychopath? And the answer is no. A label like that is inappropriate for a child for many reasons. And so we focus on what are called callous unemotional traits, which just means a lack of empathy uh, and compassion for other people, as well as a sort of a social detachment, not, not forming strong bonds with other people. And I have spent the last, oh, 15 years or so trying to understand the development of psychopathy in children and adolescents. And what we found is that even in children and adolescents as young as 10, those children who self-report and are reported by their parents to not experience remorse when they hurt other people, to not feel any compassion for other people's suffering, they already are unusually bad at recognizing what other people are experiencing fear. And we see differences in the way their brain responds as well. So a structure called the amygdala, when they see an image of another person experiencing fear, we just don't see a strong response in those children's brains, which may be why they have trouble interpreting those expressions and why they don't seem to respond uh, appropriately when they actually cause somebody to feel fear, they just go right on ahead with whatever aggression or threat they were engaged in. So, Abby, let me break this down and just kind of get a really concrete example of that. I'm a parent. Mm -hmm. I have a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old. What might I see that would worry me or lead me to kind of go, is there something about this child that's not typical or of concern? The combination of traits you would really worry about because they suggest the possibility of developing psychopathy are A, a fearless temperament. And this is partly innate. So children are born with different levels of temperamental fearfulness. And when I say a fearless temperament, I don't mean fearlessness in some situations. Children with a fearless temperament are pretty fearless across situations. They're not as fearful of the dark as other children. They end up at the top of a really tall climber and they don't seem worried that they might fall off the edge. You know, no fear around dogs, that sort of thing. Coupled with uh, a sort of a coldness. So they don't seem to form as strong bonds with other people. They're not warm around people that they should love. They don't particularly seem to care about having friends. And the combination of those traits that you can see again in children who are as young as three suggests that the kid is at high risk for developing psychopathy. That's so complicated because I can see that there would be plenty of parents who at least initially when you're talking about fearlessness would be like, that's fantastic. You know, my kid is a daredevil or a risk taker or confident. And yet you're saying that it's really the combination of the two. Exactly. That's that's worrisome. And and it can be really difficult to distinguish between stimulation seeking behavior and fearlessness. So lots of kids, especially particularly rambunctious little kids who love to try new things, will still show appropriate fear when push comes to shove. You know, maybe they're not thinking ahead enough before they charge up that really high climber that maybe is, is too high for their ability level. But then you'll see signs that they appreciate the danger, you know, maybe once they realize they can't get down, that sort of thing. And so it's important to distinguish between stimulation-seeking behavior and true fearlessness. I mean, one of the kids I studied, I remember hearing her parent tell stories about how you know, when even she, when she was a little girl, she would go into this dark basement of the building that they lived in that no other kid would go into. And she just... It wasn't that she was looking for adventure necessarily. She just, it didn't bother her. And the, the parents recognized that that was odd. Psychopathic or callous on emotional traits are relatively rare. 
you know, fewer than one in 30 or maybe fewer than even one in 50 kids will end up having a serious case of them. But then in addition, the fearlessness is only a problem really when it's coupled with this true kind of social coldness. And what does parenting have to do with psychopathy? We're still working that out. It's a really difficult nut to crack because as it happens, most children are raised by their biological parents or at least one biological parent. And what makes that difficult is that it's very difficult to disentangle what traits a child develops because of traits that they share with their parents genetically or traits that they have developed because of the way their parent interacts with them. And again, most people tend to be biased towards believing that children turn out the way they do because of the way their parents treat them. But when we actually do behavior genetic studies that involve either comparing twins uh, who are either identical or fraternal or comparing children who were adopted with children who were reared by their biological parents, we can really tease apart those two differences. You know, the, the things that children get from their parents through shared genetics versus the parents' behavior. And it, the reassuring thing I will tell parents right now, and I have kids myself, so like I, I take this to heart as well, is that we don't have nearly as much power over the way our children turn out as we might think we do. What? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. And, you, and, and this, is, this will be a relief when your child blames you for things later on. But there's a beautiful analogy of parenting um, from the developmental psychologist, Alison Gopnik, uh, who titled her recent book, The Gardener and the Carpenter. There's, a, I think, a mistake that a lot of parents have where they view themselves as carpenters and their child as the, as the item that they're building. And if they do the right thing and they put the pieces together right and they sign up for the right classes and read the right books, they'll get this perfect, I don't know, end table or whatever that they were going for. And the better analogy to parenting is a gardener. You're starting out with seeds that are already going to become something, right? If you want a zucchini, but you have zinnia seeds, you're going to end up with a zinnia, not a zucchini. Um, now, we don't know what our child's sort of inherent temperamental dispositions are at the beginning. So any child could turn into anything. We don't have the ability to see the future. But you as the parent don't have this determinative power. All you can do as a parent is sort of help your child grow into the best zinnia or zucchini that they can be. And what we know is that the, the, the most important thing when it comes to a child having a, a warm, kind, caring temperament is that they're raised by a parent who themselves is warm and responsive. That parent expresses positive emotion and affection through touch and through their emotional responses to the child. I think that's so true. And as a parent of four kids, I do completely agree with you in fight of making kind of a joke about it because I think the desire to want to believe that we can really shape our children and help them and mold them in a way that's going to make them the happiest and most successful is something I think as parents, it's so hard to let go of that because we all want to believe if I just work hard enough, if I read enough, if I Mm -hmm. practice enough, if I beg enough, if I, you know, all these things that I can somehow buffer my child from all the evils of the world and get them in the right direction. And I think anybody who's had a child and watched them grow up sees that that just really isn't true. That it really just isn't, you know, children have their own path they need to chart and our job as parents is to support them, but not to change who they are. It's really not possible to do anyways. So I want to take a quick break. Abby, when we come back, there are so many questions I have for you and want to explore a couple of things. One being, we've touched on this idea of psychopathy, but I want to really unpack that and explore what that means. And then I also want to look at how this might influence the juvenile justice system and what the implications are. Mm -hmm. 
You are listening to Dr. Joni Johnston, Dr. Abby Marsh, and Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. We'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Abby Marsh, and we are talking about empathy and how this influences adults and children, and specifically this whole concept of psychopathy as it relates to children. So we've obviously touched on this idea of, you know, budding psychopath, child psychopath, but let's take a step back for a minute, Abby, and define what psychopathy is. So psychopathy is a condition that results from a combination of personality traits. There's a, a, I think, a perception that people who are psychopathic are, you know, serial killers or something like that. And, or at the very least, I get asked a lot, you know, what about CEOs and politicians? I'm like, well, (laughs) there may be some in those ranks, but it is true that you don't have to be violent to be uh, psychopathic. Psychopathy requires having a callous disposition. So not caring about the suffering of, the, of other people, not caring if you cause other people to suffer, as well as having a sort of antisocial attitude about interpersonal relations. So, you know, viewing other people as beneath you, as, as objects to be used to achieve your own goals, which is obviously closely associated with narcissism, you know, being completely um, willing to use deceptiveness and manipulation and conning to get what you want. Uh, and then finally, people who are psychopathic tend to be fairly disinhibited and impulsive and often have a fearless disposition that underlies all of that. So if you, it, any one of those things alone um, is not great, but won't necessarily cause huge problems. But when you put them all together, you end up with essentially no breaks whatsoever on interpersonal behavior. And so you'll end up with, you know, at the extreme end, absolutely serial killers like Ted Bundy, who's from my hometown of Tacoma, Washington, and murdered, you know, maybe over 100 women during his lifetime. But you'll also end up with people, you know, and I'll hasten to say I'm not a clinician myself. I'm a research psychologist. And so the people who I mention, I have not assessed personally. But then again, because I'm not a clinician, I'm not bound by those particular rules. But many people have speculated that Bernie Madoff is probably somebody who's psychopathic, right? He was clearly uh, a lying, manipulative con artist who used other people to achieve his own ends and his behavior when he was a child and then even in adulthood suggested these other pieces of the psychopathic personality as well. So in your view, is psychopathy a mental illness? Where does it fall in the spectrum of what is this? It's, I view it as having, and it's not just me. I mean, the research is very clear that it has every hallmark of a psychological disorder. It's actually one of the reasons that I refrain from using the word psychopath. Um, it's a common term in forensic settings, but among people whose orientation is more clinical, as mine is, you know, we've stopped referring to people as their illness. So once upon a time, it was acceptable to call people schizophrenics or anorectics. 
and now we say people with schizophrenia. So I try to refer to people who are psychopathic or who have psychopathic traits for the same reason. People who are psychopathic, my own research and others has shown there are differences in the way their brains develop and the way that their brains are built by the time um, they're adolescents and adults. Uh, they have clear differences in the way they process social information. There's a strongly heritable component to psychopathy, which means that at least 50% of the variation in these traits is due to genes. And you, you can just tick down all the requirements for what qualifies something as a, as a psychological disorder, and psychopathy clearly is one. So it's something that I wish we focused more on in terms of how it can be uh, prevented and treated rather than just punished. That is such a good, I think a really good important point because, you know, we are all more than our quirks and our illnesses and our behaviors and our actions. And so I think that's a very important point to remember that, you know, to say somebody is a psychopath versus has psychopathic traits, there's a huge difference there. Mm-hmm. When we really think about it, really is. I mean, one implies kind of a judgment, a negative label, and the other implies a description yep. of some personality traits that we may or may not have more or less of. So I think that exactly. is a very, very important point to kind of bring out. Yeah, absolutely. And when you call somebody, you know, a quote psychopath, it sort of suggests that that's who they are and could never be different from. And I think that's especially why we don't want to use that word with children. Whereas saying somebody has these personality traits suggests, well, they have these traits, but there are other aspects to them, as you mentioned, and maybe these are traits that could be changed if we just had the right approach. What about the social environment or the social context of adolescence? Because that is such an interesting and kind of confusing time, it seems like. Because, you know, when, when you're teenagers, there's some things that I think are almost normal. Mm -hmm. in that developmental period that probably Mm -hmm. would not be considered normal in many other times. So help me understand that, the whole idea of empathy or fearlessness or whatever, as it relates to teenagers. Right. I mean, teenagers, I mean, everybody knows that the, you know, the teenage years are a time of a huge change in behaviors that with the big change being that teenagers become much more peer focused and they, they care less about what their parents think or really any adults. And they care a lot about what their peers are thinking and doing, which leads to all sorts of risky types of behavior and sensation seeking behavior all done because, you know, you're with your peers. It seems like fun. Um, We've, you know, there are these fantastic studies that show that uh, when teenagers are in the presence of their peers, if you put them in a brain scanner, their brain activity changes significantly, even if they think their peers are watching from another room. And it leads them to make all kinds of terrible decisions, including, you know, poor judgment when they're driving, leading to more car crashes, things that you don't see in adults. And there's this very famous age crime curve where we see that in teenagers throughout time, when they start to hit around the age of 15, uh, lasting until they're about 25, you see an increase in all kinds of impulsive and antisocial behavior leading to accidental injury and death, lots of aggression and criminal behavior, all sorts of stuff. And so the average teenager is definitely more antisocial than the average 40-year-old, for example. But even so, within that, normal range of somewhat from a, at least from an adult's perspective, undesirable Poor judgment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the right. Although I, I would argue the evidence is becoming clearer that teenagers need to go through that period. Teenagers who don't engage in, in risk taking uh, sort of boundary pushing behavior actually are worse off for it. That's kind of how they learn to regulate their emotion by adulthood. If you don't have experiences where you need to regulate strong emotions, you're never going to learn to do it. 
And there's an interesting suggestion that that might be part of the reason we're seeing so much uh, increased anxiety in teenagers now, and especially college-age adults, is because they're not doing the things that teenagers have been doing for generations. They're not having um, romantic relationships as often. They're not learning to drive. They're not having jobs. They're not uh, using substances as much as teenagers have in more recent decades. They're not doing things independently at all sometimes. They're really in the presence of adults most of the time. And that actually could be a problem. But anyways, heading back to psychopathy, you know, the, the children that I've worked with in the past are clearly on the extreme end of normal adolescent behavior. So for example, yes, you know, all teens engage in some sensation-seeking behavior. But one of the girls that I worked with took her parents' car joyriding and took a curve so fast that she ended up flipping it and crashing it against a tree. And her parents only learned about this when the police came by their house later that day looking uh, for her parents, believing that whoever had been driving that car was definitely dead because it was such a bad crash. And instead, the child who had been driving the car was sitting calmly on the couch eating Doritos as though nothing at all had happened. And and that level of like unflappability after really serious antisocial dangerous behavior is really unusual. So you mentioned both of your examples that you've given today have been about girls. Yeah. Are there gender differences in the rate of, you know, adolescents or children or adults that are more likely to develop these traits than others? I would, I would imagine that, that boys would be more likely as a gender to develop some of these traits. Absolutely. Yeah, it is more common to see psychopathic traits emerge in boys who are temperamentally a little bit more fearless than girls and temperamentally a little less sort of empathic and warm than girls, although these differences are very small even at the group level. But what that does is even these small mean differences push more boys into the extreme end of that combination of the low fearful temperament and the low warmth and um, compassion. That said, these are not traits that you, you won't see in girls. The difference, the, the biggest difference I've noticed is that the kinds of behaviors that girls engage in who have these personality traits are a little different, mainly because, for example, if you're a pipsqueak of a girl who's five foot two or something, aggression is not, and, and making threats is not a very useful strategy to achieve your goals. You might be just as callous and just as disinterested in whether you hurt other people, but if you threaten people with violence, they're not going to be that impressed. And so the girls that I've worked with tend to, and this probably won't be surprising to hear, use a lot more sort of social manipulation, social cruelty. We worked with a girl once who stole the phone of one of her teachers and was, I think, going to withhold it for sort of blackmail purposes. And the teacher ended up begging over the PA system for her phone to be returned because it had the only pictures of her like mother like shortly before her death and was so upset. And like the girl was just completely unmoved by these entreaties. So that kind of cruelty that's not about violence at all, it's not even really illegal. I mean, I guess theft is, but, but it has more of a social component to it. Uh, whereas you know, with the boys, you see more aggression. Yeah, it's interesting. I did an article, was doing some research for an article I was writing and um, about girls adolescent girls who develop some of these traits and were there any warning signs or clues. And that is one of the things I found is that a lot of times some of the girls who later had some significant problems interpersonally, legally, et cetera, et cetera, were more likely to kind of fly under the radar mm -hmm. of parents as well as teachers because mm -hmm. they weren't as overtly aggressive and mm -hmm. you know beating people up or bullying or doing some of the things that might draw attention to themselves. It was almost more of a social context 
that the aggression was coming in. And so it tended to be kind of, you know, kind of like shrugged off. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you know, the mean girl thing, you know, these are just yeah. things girls go through. And, right. yet, and yet the research shows that no, you know, most girls aren't significantly mean girls really yeah. at any point in time. I mean, there's a normal part of that, like you said, a normal range of mm-hmm. jostling and, you know, for position and that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. there, it really was, there really were some signs. They were just different. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, ask any teacher uh, and they can tell you that there's often uh, in any classroom, maybe not every year, but many years, one girl who is unusually sort of manipulative and devious and someone that other girls are a little bit frightened of because of what they're willing to do to maintain their social status. And this is a really interesting thing to think about. It's helped me conceptualize uh, psychopathic traits is that you can kind of think of human interaction as occurring along two axes, a a, a status and hierarchy axis, you know, where we think about some people as being higher status and some lower status, not that surprising. But then there's a second axis, which is about social connection and bonds and closeness. And people who are psychopathic are just kind of missing that axis. They just, they don't care that much about having bonds with other people. And so all they care about really is status and power and hierarchy. And they can, they can mimic the appearance of wanting to be close to other people if it helps them achieve hierarchy, but they don't really care about that. They're just missing that axis of human interaction. And so that's why you see some of these devious behaviors is often it's status seeking behavior. You know, I want to switch back to something because it just occurred to me, and I think it really is an important point because we were talking about parenting and and parents who might have children who are exhibiting callous and unemotional traits. And one of the most interesting things that I've read, and I want to get your take on this, Abby, is that if callous and unemotional children are less prone to fear, less prone to recognizing fear. And yet at the same time, I can see how as a parent, if you have a child who is coming across as cold Mm -hmm. or uncaring, Mm -hmm. a natural response to that really is a punitive response. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you be this way or or to Mm -hmm. punish this child? And yet we know from the research that that tends to not work at all especially with callous and emotional children. So talk a little, bit, a little bit about the kind of interactive dance that can occur that can actually make things worse, even though it can be very well-intentioned on the part of parents. Absolutely. Now, this is a really interesting thing that's been observed over the years. We know that there isn't a relationship between harsh parenting and psychopathic traits. They tend to be correlated. But when you look over time, you frequently see that the direction is that these difficult personality traits that result in the child's misbehavior end up causing parenting to become harsher over time sometimes because parents are trying to punish the child out of the bad behavior they're engaging in. And, but the problem is because these uh, behaviors emerge in part from this fearless temperament, punishment doesn't work because the whole point of punishment is, and I'm not talking about like beating a child. I'm just talking about, you know, withdrawing, um, you know, taking their phone away or grounding them or, you know, as some sort of an appropriate punishment, but it could include harsher punishment is that it's supposed to work because the child is afraid of that thing happening in the future. And so they inhibit the behavior that would result in it. That's basic behaviorism. But what we know from behaviorism, including you know, animal training and, and rats and labs, is that punishment never works to correct behavior as well as rewards for anybody. And then if you're missing sort of the standard 
fear response, punishment really doesn't work because the whole point of punishment is to cause the child or the animal to fear that bad outcome happening again. And so unfortunately, parents who try to punish their children out of these behaviors are rarely successful. And what we actually know, it's, it's hard, right? I mean, I know as a parent that when your kid is misbehaving, the last thing you want to do is double down on warmth and positive emotion. And so the key is to do it not when the child's misbehaving, but the rest of the time. What we know is that kids with these traits respond better to positive reinforcement, but it has to be really, really big because they, they're not as sensitive to it. And so you're trying to catch kids who have these risk factors doing the right thing and give them lots of positive reinforcement when they're doing that, by which I mean really big smiles and like, I mean, like almost goofy looking positive affect. And of course, this works a lot better when kids are younger. By the time they're teenagers, it's not as, it's not as useful, but still, it is the right approach. And positive touch. So a kind touch on the arm or the shoulder with a big smile and a really unmistakable positive comment is much, much more effective when kids are doing the right thing than any kind of punishment would be when they're doing the wrong thing. You know, one of the challenges, and I think one of the warnings for anyone using, you know, the budding psychopath or some of those labels is that we know it seems like that the funnel starts out pretty big and gets narrower. So for example, we know that about 40% of children who are diagnosed with conduct disorder in adolescence develop antisocial personality disorder, which means 60% do not. Right. So what happens to the rest of them? You know, how do people, you know, we have this maybe a huge group of kids starting out that seem a little bit different from their peers. And then we see adolescents again, this kind of continuum of behavior. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like that there's, you know, the odds in some respects are in our favor that Mm -hmm. a lot of the kids that we should initially might be worried about are going to end up kind of self-correcting over time. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, we wish we knew the answer for sure, but we do have some speculation. We know that kids, for example, whose conduct disorder is mostly adolescence limited, so it doesn't get bad until they hit puberty. Those kids mostly desist from antisocial behavior by the time they hit young adulthood, their early 20s. So that whole batch of kids tends to be more time limited in terms of their antisociality. For the rest of the kids, those kids who develop conduct problems earlier, they're at higher risk for developing persistent life course antisociality. But even among those kids, the kids whose antisociality emerges not from psychopathy, but from high levels of dysregulation, so they experience strong negative emotion that they have trouble regulating, that often goes away because their ability to regulate their emotions gets better. And obviously, it's helped if parents give them good scaffolding, right? Really good, clear boundaries which helps them learn to regulate their behavior, not harsh punishment, because of course, kids who start out very um, highly emotional and dysregulated, uh, punishment makes them even more dysregulated, especially if it's very harsh punishment. And so for those kids, good structure, good boundaries, good peer groups, right? Making sure that your kids aren't engaging in a lot of interactions with peers who will lead them in the wrong direction, because peers are a very strong influence on children's behavior. So let's take another break. And when I come back or when we come back to this fascinating conversation, I do want to talk specifically about the implications for the criminal justice system. So you are listening to Threat of Evidence with Dr. Joni Johnston, myself, as well as our very distinguished guest today, Dr. Abby Marsh. We'll be right back on, again, Threat of Evidence. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli 
forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, your host for today. My guest is Dr. Abby Marsh, who has done a tremendous amount of very exciting research, really about the continuums of human behavior, all the way from altruism to, you know, psychopathic traits. Today, we're focusing primarily on the psychopathic end of the spectrum, and particularly as it relates to children. We've been talking a lot about the social context of maybe adolescent behaviors that might be problematic to children who exhibit some callous or emotional traits. And I want to move into now some of the implications about your research findings for the criminal justice system. So just off the top of your head, how do you think that we as forensic professionals can use some of this information maybe to guide us First of all, maybe in terms of policy, and then we'll talk about treatment. Absolutely. I think one of the important things that we've learned from the study of psychopathy is that, you know, first of all, and I think anybody who is in law enforcement will know this, is that the tendency to engage in antisocial and criminal behavior is not spread evenly across the population. You know, within any group, within any town, within any even neighborhood, there's a a small proportion of people who are responsible for the vast majority of criminal antisocial behavior is a result of personality, as a result to some extent of opportunities and learning that they've had as well. And there's this conception that if we just punish people harshly enough, they'll stop committing crimes. And what we know about people who are psychopathic is that the most common kind of criminal behavior we see in psychopathic adults is not, you know, a few really sensational, you know, serial murder type crimes, but just a rap sheet that is inches and inches thick. They just keep offending. And there are, you know, well-known stories about the psychopathic offender who was let out of prison and there was an electronic store across the street from the prison gates. And as he was walking out of the prison, he broke in and was caught carrying a television down the street. And it didn't matter that he had just gotten punished. It didn't matter that he knew he was going to get punished again. Like it just, 
the, the, the restraints that normally keep people from doing things that result in punishment just aren't there. And so you can't punish these very high risk psychopathic offenders out of engaging in crime. And it, even with, you know, some people argue, well, like, oh, if the, if the death penalty is on the table, well, surely that'll matter. And I, what I want to emphasize is no, like if you truly have this strongly fearless temperament and disinhibition, it doesn't matter what the punishment is. It's not going to work. So Abby, among- here, here's a tricky thing, I think, when you talk about psychopathy, because I, one of the things you said earlier in the show, which I really, really relate to, and I want to emphasize is the term psychopathy is very commonly used in a forensic context. And when we're evaluating inmates and looking for recidivism risk, when somebody has that label, it is a big red flag. And you could argue two things. You could argue on the one hand, you know, vis-a-vis the study or the example you just shared, that here's somebody who's has a rap sheet, you know, two inches thick and they walk out the door and go across the street and steal a TV and are walking down the street. So there's some potentially valid information about recidivism with that label. And at the same time, there's all different reasons why somebody gets that label. So Mm -hmm. how do we use that label in a positive way Mm -hmm. versus a punitive way or a way that's going to really determine somebody's, you know, parole opportunities, mm-hmm. even unfairly. Yeah. And this is a really interesting difference I've noticed between people who are working on psychopathy in forensic settings versus clinical settings. In clinical settings, we really focus on those callous, unemotional, uncaring personality traits, because those are what really distinguish people who have textbook primary psychopathy from other offenders. In forensic settings, I've noticed that psychopathy just tends to denote the sort of most prolific, frequent, high-risk offenders, whether or not they have these callous and emotional traits. And so I think it's really important to distinguish among these different kinds of offenders because it, it changes dramatically what the, what the best approach would be. So for example, there are people who are often known as secondary psychopaths, which means that probably at birth at least, they had the potential to have an appropriate social and moral compass. But due to either you know, being very sort of innately emotionally dysregulated or frequently being uh, subject to terrible maltreatments and lots of really harmful environmental factors growing up, they developed these sort of callous traits as they got older. And that's actually quite a different situation because when you see these very high levels of emotion dysregulation and high negative emotion, that's consistent with secondary psychopathy, which actually is something that can be treated, we think. And especially if a more rehabilitative approach is taken, helping people learn to regulate themselves, in some cases providing therapy, including medication that helps reduce those strong negative emotions, you can actually make a big dent in people's uh, outcomes. So let's talk about treatment. First of all, let's talk about treatment when you have a child who is exhibiting some of these callous and unemotional traits. We've talked already about being very positive and being very warm in that situation. Is there anything that you want to add to that as a parent who's recognizing a child exhibiting some of these traits? Yeah, absolutely. The, the best approach we've found for dealing with children who have serious conduct problems, including those who seem to have these um, early signs of risk for psychopathy, uh, again, is a strong, 
warmth and positive feedback when the kid is doing something right and making sure that they don't get what they want when they're doing the wrong thing. With the classic example being the kid pitches a tantrum because they want something, don't placate them by giving it to them because all you've done, I mean, in the short term, it seems like the easy thing, right? Oh, at least the tantrum has ended. But in the long term, all you've done is reinforce that behavior. So it's going to be even worse and they're going to get even more dug in the next time around. And so, so much of parenting is about um, suffering as the parent in the short term so that things are better in the long term. And yeah, amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I think we, we can all relate to that as parents. Um, so, so, Abby, can we teach empathy to children who don't appear to be developing it naturally? That's a million dollar question. Well, we don't know. Clearly, the capacity for empathy and compassion is something that can develop and absolutely is something that people can, can improve in themselves. And the question is whether can you instill it in someone else, particularly if the, if the person doesn't have much empathy or compassion to start with, it's unlikely they're going to want to have more. <laughs> you know, it's like you have to have at least a little compassion to want to have more compassion. And so then the question is, well, maybe you can still end up being somebody whose behavior is good, even if the reason for that good behavior isn't compassion. And so that's where other approaches, rather than trying to teach empathy, come in. Um, now, maybe you can teach empathy, but maybe you don't have to in order to get a kid's behavior to improve. And this, I would imagine, is where what we call cognitive empathy comes in, which I've heard a lot about in terms of if somebody can't feel empathy, maybe they can learn cognitive empathy. Yeah, and I guess the real question is, is that going to, if you don't feel an emotion, for example, when somebody's suffering, simply learning, if somebody tells you, okay, when somebody looks like this or when they start crying, that means that they're feeling strong emotions. If you don't, I mean, the reason that children who are psychopathic don't empathize with others' fears is because they don't feel it themselves, right? I mean, you have these amazing stories about, for example, Bob Harrow was interviewing a psychopathic offender in uh, British Columbia. He was a sex offender and he was asked why he didn't empathize with his victims. And he said, well, you know, they're frightened, right? But I don't really understand what the big deal is. I've been frightened myself and it wasn't unpleasant. And so that's the problem, right? If you, whatever this man was experiencing is not fear as we think of it. It was probably something more like excitement. But you can still learn that it's not acceptable because it's bad for you if you cause other people to suffer. You can say, when you make people do this, you will never get what you want, right? The outcomes for you will be better if you engage in behavior that makes other people happy. And people can learn that, uh, even if they're not learning empathy per se. And I think you're right. I think that's kind of what I've read about in terms of the research is this cognitive empathy, which is basically, like you said, realizing that in the long run, this is going to benefit you. You as a person are going to lose. Now, here's an even harder question, which is, you know, what do we do with adults in terms of treatment who have psychopathic traits? Yeah, we're, we haven't made much progress on that front, admittedly. And the problem is that people who are psychopathic don't want to be treated. They, you know, the, the, most people seek treatment for mental disorders because they're suffering. That is one of the main criteria of some, that makes something a mental disorder is it causes suffering. But when I've worked with kids who are psychopathic, you know, these are kids whose lives are objectively not going well. Their parents are terrified of them. They don't have any friends. They've been kicked out of multiple schools. They might have been, you know, arrested or detained. 
but I'll ask the kids I work with how they feel about themselves on a scale from one to 10, with one being I feel terrible about myself and 10 being I feel great about myself. And at least in the US, the average kid will usually answer with a seven or an eight if they're psychologically healthy. That's typical. But again, the psychopathic kids whose lives objectively are going terribly will answer routinely with 10 or sometimes 11. I even had one kid answer 20. Like I, they, uh, He's like, I am great. And so how do you get from there to wanting that kid to engage with treatment if they don't want to change? But what's really frustrating for me as a researcher is that mental health organizations like the NIH have not thrown nearly the resources into developing treatments for aggression that they have into developing treatments for any other disorder. I mean, think of where we would be now in treating the emergence of psychopathy if the resources that have been put into autism, for example, over the last 30 years have also been put into psychopathy. You know, I agree. And I, you know, even if we step back and kind of go, okay, we're going to focus on behavior change, particularly among adults. I mean, mm -hmm. I would imagine that there are some strategies that could potentially be effective, at least in terms of shaping behavior. If we recognize that, okay, by the time a person is an adult, our odds are low that we're yep. going to be able to help this person develop what we might call compassion or empathy or whatever, we can yep. still focus on you know, shaping an environment so that it really rewards and encourages pro-social behavior. Exactly. And there are also, you know, strategies you can take that don't necessarily treat the psychopathy, but for example, people who are psychopathic are frequently using substances as well, which doesn't improve their behavior. And so when substance uh, abuse um, treatment programs are available and you can at least eliminate the substance use, that will certainly improve outcomes, even for somebody with psychopathy, even if you're not touching the psychopathy itself. So kind of going around the problem mm -hmm. and dealing with some of the issues that might compound mm -hmm. it is what I'm hearing you say. So exactly. let me ask you this question. So should we, and this is, kind of, this is a million dollar question, we've had several of those, I mean, how should we use this diagnosis in adults? I'm specifically talking about adults. How do we use this in the criminal justice system and how should we use this in the criminal justice system if we recognize the fact that for those relatively small subset of inmates mm -hmm. who do meet the criteria for psychopathy, how should we use that label, diagnosis, cluster of traits in things like predicting violence risk? Well, I think it's important to have good assessments of psychopathy in part because they can predict future offense risk. I mean, the, the best predictor of future offending is past offending. And that, that will always be true. But it, if we can identify that proportion of offenders who is likely to keep offending because they have psychopathic traits and other things, it's important to remember that there, that behavior is unlikely to change substantially, although it does tend to desist a little bit in older age. And these might be the offenders who, for whom harsher and harsher treatment is not going to work, but maybe more consistent behavioral constraints are necessary. You know, so there's we need to have some sort of a plan in place rather than just releasing them because this is what happens with people who are psychopathic is they get punished for each offense as it happens and then released again and then they reoffend and so it might be reasonable to think about ways to um, structure you know probation for example for highly psychopathic offenders given that we know that they are at higher risk of reoffending and but it's important to remember I mean this is one of the the caveats is that is that 
it would be nice to have ways of, of assessing psychopathy that didn't rely so much on the subjective judgments of the people doing the assessments and on the self-report of the people themselves, because we know that these, the assessments that we have are not perfect yet. And it's one of the reasons that I'm always a little bit nervous about using instruments like the PCL, which is a, it, which is a good, well-used instrument, but it's not perfect. And, you know, two different um, assessors can end up with pretty different scores. And so, you know, it should never be used, for example, to make, you know, final decisions related to, for example, the death penalty, because it's, it isn't that good. It isn't that precise. That's a really good point. I also think that if we are going to use those instruments, we need to do them over time and repeat them over time. Because mm -hmm. I think sometimes what happens is once that person gets that label, it sticks. Yep. And it sticks through eternity, at least in the criminal justice system, it seems like. And so yep. at the very least, there ought to be some safeguards, I would think, in terms of reevaluating somebody. Because we know, for example, that when you look at violent behavior, that, uh, you know, even the most hardened offenders tend to age out of that mm -hmm. violent behavior over time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. We can't think of psychopathy as a mental illness because then people can say, well, I shouldn't be punished because I'm ill and you should just let me go. And my response is, of course not. Like that's, that's definitely not what would happen if we think of psychopathy as an illness. It's not what we do when people have psychosis, for example, and still commit crimes. But we do think of their offenses differently. And at least we think about them with a treatment mentality. And I, I would argue, and I think a lot of people would argue, that the kind of person who engages in persistent aggressive antisocial behavior, despite the negative consequences it's causing in their own lives, that is itself an illness. And we're not used to thinking about it that way. We're used to thinking about mental illnesses as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, major depression, and persistent antisociality we have this moral mindset about. Like it's just, it's just a moral problem. And I think the reason is because when people are hurting other people, it's very hard to feel compassion for the offender right? We feel compassion for the victim and it causes us to blame the offender. And my argument is we should absolutely have compassion for the victim, but that doesn't preclude us from realizing that the offender is also somebody who is ill. Well, that is a great note to end on. And I'm really hoping that a few years down the road, we have the same conversation, but we have a lot more options in terms of not only how we view uh, the label psychopathy, but what options we have for doing something about it. Thank you so much, Abby, for coming on today. This was really an incredible conversation, and it certainly was a reminder of how much work we as mental health professionals have to do in trying to figure out some of these things and strategies that will keep victims safe and also offenders on a path to having a better life. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. You've been listening to my interview with Dr. Abby Marsh about psychopathy, how it relates to children and adolescents. You are listening again to Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. See you next time.